All right. Well, uh, if you didn't get a handout, you might want to grab one of those in the, uh, the back of the room. Let me tell you what we're doing today and then give you some encouragement. Uh, we are, have been talking about the doctrine of predestination, which is a difficult doctrine, to say, uh, to say the least. Uh, if you're wanting to know more specifically about what does the Bible teach regarding predestination, uh, you'll have to go online and listen to Jeff's lecture on election, and then I gave a lecture on reprobation. Last week and this week, though, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to be stepping away from systematic theology, which is summarizing what does the entire Bible teach on any one topic, and doing a little what's called historical theology. We're going to figure out what did Christians before us believe about predestination, okay? And so part of my hope is to let you know that uh, Christianity doesn't start with us. Christianity doesn't start with our parents. Jesus promises that the gates of Hades will never overcome his church. And so there's never been this time in church history where there haven't been true Christians, true believers. There are times where the church has been more or less pure, but there has always been Christ's church. And so uh, I wanted you to uh, remember that. Additionally, uh, as we continue going throughout this semester, we're not just going to be doing predestination the whole time. So if you're like, I am done with this topic. This is stressing me out. It's philosophical. This is the last one we're going to do of this semester on predestination. We're going to get into some other things like regeneration. We're going to talk about conversion. We're going to talk about some other things about how we get salvation. The reason we spent so much time on predestination is because of the three churches where I have pastored, this is the question I get the most, and there is not a close second. Every week, basically, in my ministerial career, someone will send an email, they will call, they will ask a question about this because we want to know, how does God's sovereignty work with human freedom? And so that's what we've been asking. And so today's going to be a little bit more of a history lesson. We're not doing church history, which I'd love to eventually do in here, but that would take a lot more time. We're just looking at what the church has believed just on this doctrine, just about predestination, okay? And so last week, we talked about... Uh, the church in the early church and the Middle Ages. So let me give you just a brief history of Christianity in one minute. You ready? There are three main branches of Christianity, okay? So everybody that's an Orthodox Christian falls in those branches. People that are heretics, people that are cults, they fall in Satan's church, what Revelation would call a synagogue of Satan. But as far as true Christianity, there are three main branches. Uh, first of all, we come out of Judaism, okay? What is Christianity? Christianity is simply fulfilled Judaism. It's Judaism where Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things in the Jewish scriptures, okay? So we come out of Old Testament Judaism, believing Judaism, and so about 33 AD, we're not for sure when Christ was crucified uh, to the exact year. There's a lot of uh, speculation on that, but it's around 33 AD. Uh, after that, you have uh, the beginnings of the Christian church, okay? You have Roman Catholicism. Now, the word Catholic just means universal, okay? So at first, it's not Roman Catholicism. To be Catholic just simply meant universal, meaning Christian. There's only one church. We're just Christians. That's all that it meant. So you have that there. In 1054, there's a big split uh, between the church, okay? So up until 1054, to be Christian meant that you were Catholic, and those were your only options. You were Catholic or you were not a Christian. In 1054, the church splits, okay, after, uh, due to a doctrinal controversy called the Filioque controversy, which we don't have time to get into. But in 1054, what happens is you get the Eastern Church and the Western Church splitting, and you get the beginnings of what is called Greek Orthodoxy, okay? First big branch in Christianity, Catholicism. Second big branch is uh, Greek Orthodoxy. I actually have a cousin who's Greek Orthodox. Uh, Greek Orthodox is what you'll see in Eastern Europe a lot of times and uh, Western Asia. So this is Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. Uh, they usually have big beards and they have those cool onion-looking dome buildings and these kind of things. That's Greek Orthodoxy. And then in uh, about 1517, as seen as the start of the Reformation, you get Protestantism, the third branch of Christianity. And uh, Protestant denominations are things like Baptist, Methodist, 
Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Anglican, Episcopalian, uh, Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, all these kind of things, okay? So basically everything else that's Orthodox that's not Catholic or Greek Orthodox is Protestant. And so last week, we talked about what has the church believed on predestination from here to here. That's a lot, 1,500 years. Today, we're just going to cover that last 500 years. We're going to talk about predestination in the Protestant Reformation and in the modern period. Church history is typically divided up into four big periods. The early church is from the time of the New Testament to about 500 A.D. From about 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., you have the Middle Middle Ages. You have the medieval church. Uh, From about 1500 to 1750-ish, you have the Protestant Reformation and all its underpinnings. And then uh, after that, you have what is called the modern period. Okay? There's my recap. So, already, you're asleep, you're bored, now let's get into some history. You ready? All we're trying to ask today is not everything in church history. We're simply asking this. What did Protestants and those after Protestants believe about predestination? Okay? Again, the church doesn't start with us. The main point of teaching this is simply to say this. What has historically been called Calvinism does not start with Calvin. Okay? The church has already been wrestling for 1,500 years on this issue before Calvin is even born, okay? And so I want you to realize all Christians have to deal with this issue. So let's go over some helpful definitions before we get started, okay? The first is conditional election, and the other is unconditional election. Let me say it this way. You can't say, I don't believe in predestination. Do you know why? Because that word is in the Bible. That's like saying, I don't believe in the word the. No, it's in the Bible. You have to ask, what does that word mean? All Christians have to wrestle with predestination. The word, prohorizo, is what it is in Greek, to mark out a boundary beforehand. That word occurs multiple times in the Bible. So the question is not, does God predestine? The Bible's clear that he does. The question is, what does that mean? On what grounds does God predestine? Does he look ahead in the future and see who's going to choose them and then choose them back? Or does he look ahead in the future and see that everybody's going to reject him and so God has to take the first step in salvation? Or is the idea of God looking in the future doesn't make any sense anyway because God ordains and sets the future. He just doesn't look into something that's already been set by something that's not him. There you go. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's look at these definitions. Conditional election. This is the view of what is called Arminianism. We'll talk a little bit about that. God elects some people to be saved based upon their foreseen merit, faith, or future decision to follow him. So in the Arminian system, in conditional election, it's this idea that God does elect people, but the reason he picks some people and not others is because something in that person. God looks at 100 people and he says, this one's smart, this one's going to choose me, this one's going to make a better decision than these other ones, this one's more morally inclined, so therefore I'll choose them back. Okay? The Calvinistic view, the Augustinian view, the view that I would uh, encourage you to hold that I think is more biblical is the view of what's called unconditional election. God elects some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit, faith, or future decision to follow him, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Okay? If God looks ahead in the future and sees who's going to choose him, that answer is zero. Right? That we are born spiritually dead. There are, quote, none who seek for God. No, not one. So if God's looking to say, who's seeking for me? Not one. So God can do two things. He can A, let everyone go to hell, or B, he can save some. Those are his options. And he does B, okay? So we talked about predestination last week. You'll need to go back and listen to that lecture if you want to know uh, where we are, just as a, a quick recap. The early church doesn't have a strong stance on predestination. They somehow hold that God is sovereign, and yet we make decisions that really matter. It's a big debate between two guys in church history that really brings this up. On the one hand, you have St. Augustine. Yeah, St. Augustine, he's the best. And on the other hand, you have the villain, Pelagius. Boo, that's good. That's good. I've taught you to boo with Pelagius. Pelagius thought that you literally earned God's favor, 
right? You didn't need God's grace. God's grace was that he gave you the rules. You need to stop whining and you need to try harder, okay? That's Pelagius. In fact, one of the guys on staff had forgotten to do some sort of task, and so I just texted them, do better, Pelagius, right? That's Pelagianism, okay? Whereas Augustine would say, that's not biblical. The Bible teaches that we're born in sin. We're born broken. Why do we have this inclination towards what is evil? Because we're born sinful, and we cannot choose God on our own, and so what we need is grace. And so after that, you got the Middle Ages, which basically agree that Pelagius is the worst. Everybody hates Pelagius. Pelagius' face is on everybody's dartboard in the Middle Ages. Uh, But what you get in the Middle Ages is you get this idea that God will give you grace as long as you do your best. There was this famous phrase in the Middle Ages, which is, God does not deny grace to him who does what is in him. Meaning, if you'll do your best, then God will give you grace. Here's the problem with that. When have you done your best? How do you know that you're trying hard enough? Couldn't you always pray more? Couldn't you always repent more? Couldn't you give more money to the poor? Couldn't you do these things? If grace simply means that God gives grace to the people that try the hardest, well, then now all of a sudden, a lot of your effort is involved in saving yourself. And that is what drove a young monk, an Augustinian monk, by the way. He had read Augustine, named Martin Luther, uh, in the uh, the 15th and uh, 16th centuries to wrestle with this. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on Martin Luther. We have a whole teaching on who is Martin Luther. By the way, he's different than Martin Luther King Jr., okay? Sometimes when I've taught this, people are like, I didn't know he was German. Uh, (laughs) Martin Luther King Jr. is not German. He's the civil rights leader. Martin Luther, who... King Jr. is named after. Martin Luther is a uh, German guy. And uh, what he does is he basically is trying to earn God's salvation. He gets caught in a thunderstorm, promises to become a monk. If he can get out of the thunderstorm alive, he does. He becomes a monk, and he does everything he can to try to earn salvation. Why? Because in the Middle Ages, there was this idea that God will not deny grace to him who does his best, to him who does what is in him. And so Luther is killing himself trying to do that. He's going to confession so much that the priests have to tell him to go away and come back when you have something real to confess. He's beating his own body with a whip when he sins to try to show God how sorry he is. He does all of this, and he eventually becomes a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg, and he is studying through Romans, and he realizes that that's not how salvation is obtained, that God doesn't give grace to him who does his best because we're all broken in sin. God simply gives grace to broken sinners, and you get the start of the Protestant Reformation. So, simply to say, Martin Luther uh, holds to this view of unconditional election. Now, Lutherans today are not as strong as Luther was. Lutherans today have become a bit watered down, depending on the denomination, Uh, but Luther was very uh, pro-talking about election, pro-talking about predestination. Here's some quotes from Luther. Our salvation may be taken entirely out of our hands and put into the hand of God alone. And this, too, is utterly necessary, for we are so weak and uncertain that if it depended on us, not even a single person would be saved. The devil would surely overpower us all. But since God is dependable, his predestination cannot fail and no one can withstand him. We still have hope in the face of sin, okay? He also says, the human doctrine of free will and of our powers no longer amounts to anything. Our will is unimportant. God's will is choosing and decisive. Here's what he's saying. Do you have free will? Sure. Does God have free will? Sure. When those are at odds, who wins? God does, okay? Think of, the, think of Paul. Paul hates Christians, hates Christ. He's going to kill and imprison Christians. And Jesus is like, hey, I know that was your plan, but let's do this instead. You be a great apostle for me. Okay? That's how God does things. Okay, another guy important in the Reformation is a guy named John Calvin. Okay? The term Calvinism is named after this guy, despite the fact that he didn't invent it. It wasn't even the thing that he talked about the most. Okay? 
So when I say that we're Calvinists here at, uh, at Parkway, I don't mean this. I don't mean there's the Bible, and in addition to the Bible, there's another source of authority from God named John Calvin. That's not never what we mean. We believe in sola scriptura, the Bible alone. When we say that we're Calvinists, what we say is we think the way to interpret the Bible is the way that these other theologians before us have interpreted the Bible. So the, the, the authority just comes from Scripture alone, but you have to say what that Scripture means. You have to interpret it correctly. You can't just say, I believe the Bible, right, and then misinterpret it. The devil quotes Scripture when he's trying to trick Jesus in the wilderness, okay? So you have to actually say, what does the Bible mean? John Calvin is a uh, brilliant young scholar. He is, uh, his first published work is a uh, commentary on Cicero that he wrote in Latin at the age of 23, what were you doing when you were 23? You're not John Calvin, okay? His salary was paid in wine, which is interesting, but John Calvin is going to be uh, one of the uh, big proponents of defending Protestant doctrine. So Martin Luther gets the Protestant Reformation kicked off, which is really just this return to the Bible. Luther's a firebrand, though. Luther is stressed out. He's very emotional. He's kind of the emo kid that just doesn't know what to do and had a a mean daddy and these kind of things, whereas Calvin is a, a very clear thinker. He's very reserved. He's very patient. He's not ready, fire, aim. That's Luther. Calvin is ready, 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 aim, aim, fire. And then it's a perfect shot, okay? So here's some things Calvin says. We call predestination God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he willed to become of each person. For all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others. Therefore, as any man has been created to one or the other of these ends, we speak of him as predestined to life or death, okay? A few things to mention with Calvin. Calvin did not invent the idea of predestination, okay? In fact, it isn't the major thing he stresses. In fact, the word predestination didn't even occur in his first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. That was his systematic theology textbook, and in the first edition, he doesn't even use the word predestination, okay? To quote Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible, predestination doesn't come from Calvin. He got it from Augustine. And Augustine got it from Moses, and Moses got it from God, okay? This is just a biblical idea, all right? We're not basing it on some just man. We're saying that this is what Scripture teaches, that if God is... God can't just know the future because God is also the one who sets the future. He doesn't look and say, what has already been determined? Oh, wow, man, I really would have done things differently. Whatever God determined this is really smart. That's not what he's doing. Okay? God cannot know something he did not himself ordain. Okay? <clears throat> Next, predestination is a Christian idea, not just a Calvinistic idea. This shows how far most Christians have accidentally waded into the condemned position of Arminianism. Calvin is simply building on 1,500 years of thinking about predestination. We talked about that last week. Additionally, it was Calvin's successor that really made that the big issue. It was a guy named Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, uh, sorry, successor in uh, Geneva, Uh, which is the one who really pushed Calvinism to the limits. He emphasized limited atonement in what is considered one of the strongest forms of double predestination, okay? Now, let me tell you why Calvin is important for church history when it comes to this doctrine. A few things here. Number one, he shows that predestination is true biblically, not just philosophically, okay? Before Calvin, when uh, theologians would talk about predestination, they would use all these logical proofs, all these philosophical proofs. We saw that last week with guys like Thomas Aquinas, okay? Whereas Calvin will do that as well, but he goes over text after text after text showing God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He loves Jacob and hates Esau before they're born. He works all things according to the counsel of their will. Nobody chooses God, and so God must choose them first if there's going to be any salvation at all, etc. He's a, he's a good Bible commentator. He's a Bible guy. He's a good exegete, okay? Number two, 
He shows that since God exists before we do, and he doesn't gain new knowledge, all of his decisions are made before any of ours. This means he can't look ahead into the future and see what people will decide because God's decisions come first. So let me blow your mind with a little philosophy. You ready? Do you agree that God exists before humans? Yes, all Christians do, okay? Do you agree that God knows everything? Yes, all Christians do. Do you agree that God doesn't gain new knowledge? God doesn't ever learn something he didn't already know. Yes, good, all Christians do. If those three things are true, then all of God's decisions exist before any of yours, okay? There, God is never reactive. God is never throwing a dart and drawing a bullseye around it, okay? And so uh, Calvin does make also good philosophical defenses for this. Number three, he proves that election is unconditional, i.e. based on something in God and not something on us. So here's what we said last week. Every Christian denomination agrees that God chooses us and we choose God, okay? Everyone agrees both of those are true. The question is, which comes first? Which is the cause and which is the effect? We would say that God's decision comes first, and therefore we react to God's decision, not the other way around, okay? And that means that if God is saving us, it's not because of something in us, it's just because God had mercy on us. If you're a Christian right now, hear what I'm about to say. God just looked across the sea of damnable humanity and said, I'm going to set my love on you, I'm going to set my love on you, I'm going to set my love on you. Why? Was it because we were smarter or better or better decision makers than these other lost people? No, just because God is loving and he just decided to love you. We are like adopted children who are asking, why did you choose me when there are all these other kids in the orphanage? I wasn't the prettiest kid, I wasn't the smartest kid, and God basically says to us, yes, but you're the one I just decided to love. You're the one I decided to take home. You're the one I decided to give good things to. You're the one I decided to adopt, number four. Calvin emphasized that election was true of individuals like Jacob and Esau and not just groups. God doesn't just elect groups but also elects those who will be a part of those groups, okay? There is this idea in theology that sometimes when uh, people talk about election, they act as though God just elects people groups. God elected the nation of Israel but not other nations. God elects to save the church, Christians, but not individuals. Here's the problem with that. You ready? The church is made up of individuals. Well, Israel is made up of individuals. If you say God is elected to save Israel, guess who also picks who's born in Israel and who is not? God, okay? So uh, Calvin mentioned that you have to include this not just with groups of people, but with individuals. Number five, he emphasized double predestination, okay? We talked about that last week. Single predestination is where God elects some people to salvation, and then kind of just doesn't touch the other people. Doesn't, he doesn't really know what's going to happen. He's like, well, I haven't elected them and they're sinners. Let's see what will happen, all right? Double predestination is that God actively saves and actively condemns. He actively elects and he actively what's called reprobates. He does not elect unto salvation some. Calvin says, it will be highly absurd to say that others acquire by chance or obtain by their own effort what election alone confers on a few. Therefore, those whom God passes over, he condemns. And this he does for no other reason than that he wills to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines for his own children. Okay? For his own children. The idea of double predestination. Number six, Calvin warned against speculation on this matter, saying more than the Bible says about predestination, but he also warned against people who would say nothing about it. Okay? Now, let me say what I mean by that. When it comes to this idea there's a tension. The Bible affirms that there's only one God and that God is somehow three distinct persons, each person fully being God, what we call the Trinity, right? So think about it. I have a son, his name is Judah, but if I ask you how many humans are there, the answer is two. 
God has a son, Jesus, but if I ask you how many gods are there, the answer is only one. So we mean something by saying Jesus is the son of God that is different than we mean with human relations or something like this, okay? We have this idea of God being a trinity. And we don't know how it works, but we're not going to deny it because the Bible's clear on both of those things. It's the same way with this doctrine, okay? I don't know how God can actively ordain everything and us still be held accountable for our actions. I don't know how it works. Both are true. I'm not allowed to deny one or the other of those just because I can't fit them together, though. How evil would that be? So there's a tension here, and one of the things Calvin says is, don't get rid of the tension. I understand there's a tension. Don't go too far on this. Our thoughts on this should only go as far as Scripture, okay, and the implications of Scripture. Now, Calvin, though, also corrects those that would say, well, let's not do theology. This is too heady. This is something we shouldn't dive into. He would say, no, you need to use your brain. The Bible does say some things about this, and so we need to take this as far as we can biblically, but no further, okay? There is a sense in which we have to have this humility. There's an old joke that uh, someone asked St. Augustine uh, about what was God doing before he created the world, okay? And the question's flawed. There's no time. There's just God, etc. And uh, Augustine's quip was he was thinking of designing hell for people that ask questions like that. And so, <clears throat> and so the point is, there needs to be a sense of humility when it comes to, uh, comes to this doctrine, okay? Now, here's what you need to know. Calvin's position on predestination would become the standard position of Protestantism, okay? To be a Protestant historically means you're Reformed. To be a Protestant historically means you're Calvinistic, okay? According to church history, you are either Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, or Protestant slash Reformed slash Calvinistic. Everything else is an aberration, Okay? Everything else is an aberration. Now, there were some reactions to Protestantism. There were some reactions to Calvinism. Okay? First of all, you had a Catholic reaction. The Catholics obviously don't like the Protestants. The Protestants, are, in their mind, are the ones that split the church. What the Protestants would say is, no, you split the church when you started praying to Mary and doing all this other weird stuff. We're just trying to get back to what the early church believed. Uh, but uh, the Catholics would reject justification by faith alone. They would reject the assurance of salvation. So I would say, if you're a Christian, you should have assurance. You should know, because God is not a liar, and I know Christ, I'm going to be saved. That is a sin in Roman Catholicism. That is called the sin of presumption. Here you are presuming upon God to do the thing he promised to do. You're supposed to assume that. You should presume upon God's grace when God says he's going to do something. But anyway, they rejected that, and they rejected unconditional election. Okay? They launched against the Protestants something called the Council of Trent, and they have a bunch of condemnations, which is basically against everything we hold as Protestants. But here's one of them. If anyone says that a man who is born again and justified is bound by faith to believe that he is assuredly in the member of the predestined, let him be anathema. That's a fancy word for damned, okay? Anathema means damned, okay, that he's kicked out. You had the Anabaptists, okay? The Anabaptist rejection. What are Anabaptists? They are people today that are linked to like Mennonites, if you know what Mennonites are, kind of the brethrenish movement, uh, and uh, they rejected unconditional election and reprobation. And then you had what is called the Armenians. Now, let me, let me just break this down real quick. What is an Armenian? Yes, it's like a, an ethnic group, right? Armenia, Okay. That is different than an Armenian. Do not get those confused. I hear people all the time that's like, yeah, she's an Armenian. I'm like, no, I think Kim Kardashian's an Armenian. I think this person's an Armenian, right? So this is different. This is named after a guy named Jacob Arminius, okay? 1560 to 1609. So what's going on here? <clears throat> you have Calvinism. You have the standard form of Protestantism. And you have this young theologian, a guy named Jacob Arminius. And he says, I think this is wrong. I think we've gone astray somewhere. I don't agree with this Calvinistic thing. 
And so him and some followers launch what is called the remonstrance, okay? To, a remonstrance is a rebellion. It's a, uh, it's a rejection. It's a reforming. It's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a protest. That's what the word means. And so uh, the remonstrance, which is spelled with a T, that's the people that are remonstrance, launch what is called the five articles of remonstrance, which is to rebel. Basically, they're saying, here are five problems we have with Calvin, okay? That's what they're saying. So they have the five articles of remonstrance, a document drawn up in 1610 by the Arminians of the Dutch Reformed Church, presenting the differences between their doctrines and those of the Calvinist. Those who were part of this Arminian party were called the remonstrance, okay, remonstrance. Now, here are the five points of Arminianism, okay? The five points of Calvinism, have you heard of that phrase before? Who can, t- who can tell me the five points of Calvinism? Okay, no, 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 raise your hand. And I'll call on you, and you will say all five of them loudly. Okay. Who, who wants to do it? Who can do it? It's on your seat. What a cheater. Okay. Total depravity. Keep going. Keep going. That's good. Those are the five uh, points of Calvinism. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, Calvin did not create that system. That was a response to the Arminian system. It's the Arminians who first came up with this whole five-point thing, and it was the Calvinists who replied to that. But here were, the, here were the Arminians' five points. Here's what they said. Number one, they believe that humanity is depraved, but God uses provenient grace to restore man's ability to respond to him. What does that mean? That means that the Arminians agree that everyone's born with original sin, everyone's born broken, but God gives everyone at least enough grace to overcome that and choose Christ. That's their view. That's what prevenient grace is, that God gives enough grace to every... They they can't just say everyone's born sinful and some people choose Christ. That would be Pelagian, okay? So they have to say that God somehow gives grace, so he gives everybody just enough grace to be able to choose Christ. Number two, they would say election is conditional. It is based on man's future decision to follow Christ. Number three, they would say atonement is unlimited, okay? Christ died with the intent to save everyone, not just the elect. We taught against this when I taught on limited atonement earlier in this semester, okay? Number four, they would say that saving grace can be resisted. Not grace. We all agree that people can resist God's grace. We do it all the time. But saving grace can be resisted. That Paul literally could have told Jesus no. Okay? That saving grace can be resisted. And then lastly, they hold that a believer can lose their salvation. A true believer. Not just somebody who appears to be a believer to us from our human vantage point. That happens all the time. But from God's vantage point. So God has the names of those he's going to save written in the book of life, and that number can somehow change, I guess, okay? That a believer can really lose their salvation. They can be adopted and then unadopted. They can have their sins covered and then no longer covered, okay? Now, those points were seen by the church at that time as being absolutely false, absolutely a risk of everything sacred. And so what you had is you had a group of the church that was called together at what is called the Synod of Dort. That sounds weird. It happened in a town called Dortrecht. That's why it's called the Synod of Dort. And that was uh, 1618 through 1619. And here's what happened there. They condemned Arminianism and responded to their five points with their own. Okay, now let me say this. They did not use this English acronym TULIP. Okay, that doesn't come till way later. Calvin writes in French. He writes in Latin. They write in Latin. They write in all these other kind of languages. They're Dutch, a lot of them. Uh, And so uh, they're not writing in English. Although using tulip is an appropriate flower for something that's going on with Dutch people, right? Uh, Both for the uh, Reform side and the Arminian side. But they didn't come up with this acronym. But what they did is they did come up with those five points. They didn't call them this, but they realized, no, mankind is totally depraved, not just wounded, 
not just given enough grace where anybody can choose. God does elect, but it's based on something in God, not based on something in us. That uh, Jesus died with the intent to save those he came to save, not just hoping it would take for everybody, okay? Uh, And that only those who would believe would get it. Uh, That if God wants to save somebody, they cannot ultimately resist his saving call, and then a true believer cannot lose their salvation, okay? So that is uh, predestination uh, in the... uh, in the the Reformation era. Let's do this last part, predestination in the post-Reformation period, 1750 to the present, and then we will have a lot of time for questions today. Is this fun? Do y'all like church history stuff? I do too. I just feel like it's a lot. So if we ever do church history, here's what we'll do. We will go slowly, okay? What we're doing last week and this week is we're having to cover hundreds of years, just about one doctrine though. So it's like, here's predestination, and here's what 100 people thought about it. So I realize it's a lot, but, uh, but bear with me, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll eventually do church history sometime. So that is in the Reformation period. So let's recap the different periods. If you were here last week, what did the early church believe about predestination? It was Labor Day. I know you're on a boat somewhere. If you were here, do you remember what the early church thought about predestination? What was it? Yeah, there's a sense in which they're undecided, that they agree God has elected, but they also don't know how human free will fits into that, so they kind of just leave it up in the air. They talk about both, but they don't have a strong stance on it. And then you get the whole Pelagian-Augustinian controversy, and that kind of settles it for the church, where they realize Pelagius is wrong, we're born sinners, God is gracious. What did the church believe about, uh, about the Middle Ages? What did the church believe about predestination in the Middle Ages? Yes, in the medieval church, they basically say, we like Augustine, we like that we're saved by grace, but we don't like Augustine's view of predestination. So it starts to become a little works-basedy, and then you get in the Protestant Reformation uh, what we would hold here at Parkway, which is a strong view of, uh, of predestination, that we are born broken and evil, no one would choose. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and we say, forget you, I'm fine, every one of us. And so what Christ has to do is he has to... Uh, uh, overcome and, uh, and break our will. So now let's talk about predestination in the post-Reformation period, okay? This would be 1750 to the present. Let's talk about the First Great Awakening, okay? The First Great Awakening, have you heard of this? Think back to history class when you were like in elementary school and you took a social studies test or whatever and you made like a 17, you remember? <laughs> this was First Great Awakening. It was a religious revival in the 1730s and 40s in both Britain and the 13 British colonies. Why do I say the 13 British colonies? Notice the dates here. Well, this is not 1776 yet, uh, and so you don't have the United States of America yet, okay? Now, you had, within the, the First Great Awakening, you had a Calvinist side of it and an Arminian side of it. The Calvinist side was, uh, was better. Uh, you had a guy named George Whitfield who was a famous, famous uh, preacher, excellent preacher. Uh, he would talk about preaching to coal miners, uh, these rough men in kind of the backwoods and how he would see white lines just streaming down their face because their faces would be covered in soot and they would be crying as he's preaching the gospel. Uh, he would talk about mankind's inability to believe. He would sometimes end sermons this way. He would say, and now, because you cannot pray for yourselves because you are half man and half devil, I will pray for you. And he would go over in the corner and cry and pray for the congregation while they just sat there. I say we start doing that at Parkway. <laughs> in the very sermon, you can just watch one of us cry in the corner. Uh, but he is, uh, I mean, he is a fantastic preacher. In fact, uh, Benjamin Franklin 
uh, was one time asked, why does he go hear Whitfield preach? Because that was one of the things. If you could hear Whitfield preach, you wanted to. And Benjamin Franklin, was, uh, who was not a Christian, he was more of a deist. He would say that maybe there's a generic God who created the universe and then is kind of hands off. And someone one time asked Benjamin Franklin, why do you go hear Whitfield preach if you don't believe what he says? And he said, because he does. And so he, uh, he could tell that there was a fire within Whitfield where Whitfield really believed the gospel. He really believed Jesus saved sinners. He really believed that we were broken. And you also got uh, the greatest mind to ever come out of America, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, 1703 through 1758. Went to uh, Yale at the age of 14, uh, graduated at 17. He went on to become the president of Princeton. He would study for 14 hours a day. Uh, He wrote on philosophy. He wrote on theology. He wrote on science. He writes on all these other things. Uh, And this is an age where you had to know Greek, Hebrew, and Latin before you could even apply to be uh, a minister, to go to school, to learn theology. And so very, very bright guy. And these guys, tons of people are getting saved. And they're not doing all the hyped-up emotional nonsense Edwards would come up like with his glasses and he would just read his sermon and people would like fall down on the floor and get saved, okay? And so there was this massive revival that was going on. And by the way, it's being led by Calvinists. Have you ever heard somebody say Calvinism hurts evangelism? Not historically. Historically, Calvinism spurs on evangelism because as God is sovereign in salvation, the pressure is off you, so you're free just to be faithful and share the gospel, okay? But you did have a, uh, an Arminian response. You had a guy named John Wesley. John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley are the founders of the Methodist Church, Okay, the Methodist Church, uh, which is kind of a, an offshoot of Anglicanism. And uh, John Wesley uh, was also a great preacher. His theology was not as good, but he was faithful. He did love Christ. He did love the gospel. Methodists today do not hold the same gospel that uh, Wesley himself held. Uh, his brother Charles was a great hymn writer. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, things like that. That was written by Charles Wesley. And uh, what John Wesley would do is he would ride thousands of miles on horseback to preach. Okay? He actually had his horse so well-trained that he would let go of the reins and he would kick his feet up on the back of the horse's neck and he would prepare his sermons out of his Greek New Testament while riding to the next town, okay? Again, we're nothing today. All these guys are just mammoth uh, guys. I mean, they're just amazing guys. And then today we're like, uh, we get stressed out if our AC goes out. Okay. John Wesley, 1703 through 1791, along with his brother Charles, founded Methodism. By the way, they were given the name Methodist by their opponents, okay? By the way, no denominational name ever started with them saying that that's gonna be their denomination, okay? Luther just said, I wanna be part of Jesus' church. That's the only thing that's in the Bible. I'm a Jesus church person. And people said, ah, your followers, they follow Luther. They're called Lutherans. He's like, no, don't call them Lutherans. We're just Jesus people, okay? And then you have the Presbyterians. They're like, no, no, we're just trying to follow Jesus' church. We're just trying to be a part of it. We're just trying to be Christians. And then their opponents would say, yes, but your church governance has elders, what is called presbyteroi, therefore you're Presbyterian. The Methodists are trying to say, we're just trying to go back to the Bible. We're not ever trying to create a domination. And their opponents say, you guys are really methodical. You pray on certain days. You fast on certain days. You preach through certain texts. You're the Methodist, okay? So realize nobody ever said, I'm going to be a Baptist. They just said, I'm going to be a Christian and go to the Bible. And those names are attached to them by their opponents, And those names distinguish what makes them different from other Christian groups. You don't have a a denomination called the Trinitarians because all Christians are Trinitarian. You don't have a denomination called the Resurrectionists because all Christians believe in the resurrection. You have denominational names based on what makes you different than other Protestants or whatever, okay? Anyway, he promoted conditional election, which was the view of Arminius. Arminianism grew especially among the frontiers. Now, let me tell you this. If you grew up in Texas, raise your hand. Amen. Now, let me tell you something. Depending on where you go in the U.S., you will see a bigger influence of different denominations, okay? 
If you go up the East Coast, kind of northeast, you will have a lot of Presbyterians. You will have a lot of Congregationalist churches. In fact, by the time of the Civil War, there were 54 religious colleges in the United States. 51 of them were Presbyterian or, uh, or Congregational. Okay? If you get into places like Maryland, you get into places like Pennsylvania, you'll have a super high Catholic uh, concentration. If you start getting into the Midwest, you'll have a very high Lutheran uh, presence. And one of the things you have the most in the South, so from here all the way up to kind of North Carolina, is you have a ton of Baptist and you have a ton of Methodists, okay? Why? Well, Methodists because you had circuit-riding preachers. You had preachers that would ride from church to church to church and spread these little churches, and so Methodism spread like crazy in the South, as did the Baptist, okay? Uh, why? Well, Baptists had invented something that hadn't been used much before that in church history, which was the bivocational pastor, a guy who would be a farmer during the week, or raise horses during the week or whatever, and then would end up preaching on Sunday. So you got Baptists and Methodists just pervading the South. But because you didn't have as high of an education on both those groups, you got a lot of Arminianism. Those that are more theologically educated tend to be, in Protestant circles, reformed, whereas those that are not tend to just kind of assume uh, human freedom and human free will and these kind of things. Okay? By the way, the historic view of Baptist is to be reformed. It is to be Calvinistic. You then got the second great awakening. So I'm going to teach you another yay and boo. All right, you ready? First great awakening. Yay. Second great awakening. Boo. Second great awakening was led by a heretic, okay? Uh, he, uh, he is a guy named Charles Finney uh, who didn't believe in original sin. Uh, and you got the second great awakening, 1790 through 1820. Uh, it made Arminianism kind of the norm in the U.S. And it didn't believe in this view of unconditional election. So here's the kind of preaching you got in the first great awakening. Ready? You are a sinner. You cannot choose Christ on your own. Your only hope is that God might have mercy on you. May he have mercy on your soul. And people would beg for Christ to save them and they'd be saved. Here's the kind of preaching you got in the second great awakening. They would, you, this is where you got fire and brimstone preaching. This is where you got a lot of yelling and theatrics. Uh, this is where they would have up front what was called an anxious bench. So if you started feeling convicted, you could come up here to the anxious bench and uh, pray with somebody. This is where you get the invention of the altar call. <gasps> what? You're telling me they didn't do the altar call throughout all of church history until now? Yep. Okay. How did people get saved? Maybe by the Spirit. Maybe by grace. Maybe it was something God did. Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with an altar call. The problem is in the Second Great Awakening, the altar call was used as this way to, if I can just play just as I am one more time, if we can just get that organ burning hot, we can work up enough emotion to get people to come forward and of their own free will choose Christ, okay? And what that led to was a pseudo-Christian community. It led to kind of this broken, borderline, heretical, Arminian kind of Christianity pervading the U.S. And it was that, that uh, in addition to Catholics who don't hold unconditional election, Arminianism eventually would go on to infect Episcopalians, Lutherans, Methodists, and some Baptist, Pentecostals, and other denominations, okay? Now, one more character you need to know about, just because we're doing church history. Uh, this is a guy named Karl Barth. Notice that I did not say Barth. Okay? It's St. Augustine. It's not St. Augustine. Okay? It's Karl Barth. It's not Karl Barth. He's German. Okay? 1886 through 1968. Now, let me tell you about this guy. He is enormous. I don't mean physically. I mean his presence and his theological writing uh, is enormous. He is the most influential theologian in the 1900s. Okay? Anybody post-1900 has to deal with Barth when they're dealing with theology. Okay? He is neo-Orthodox. What does that mean? He grew up being trained in liberalism, which was this, uh, this idea in theology that the Bible's not really inspired, Jesus isn't really God, 
Christianity is basically just about social justice. It's just about loving other people uh, and trying to be nice to your neighbor and these kind of things. And uh, he reacted against that, and so he became neo-Orthodox. So some of his positions are really good, okay? He loves the Trinity. He loves the otherness of God. He realizes that mankind is broken. Some of those things are good, but some of his theology is uh, not good, okay? He didn't believe that the Bible was just God's revelation. He believed revelation is what happened to you when you were reading the Bible. So as I'm reading the Bible, God is speaking revelation to me. That's what's called neo-Orthodox. That's not what we hold. We hold that the Bible itself is God's revelation. That is how God is speaking to you is just in the Bible, not the words you're hearing in your head while you're reading the Bible, but rather the Bible itself, okay? Now, he had a different view of election. It's totally wrong, but I'm just sharing it with you. Why? Because as we've said before, we always give you what you need at Parkway and a lot of times more than what you need. So impress your friends. Carl Barton, let me tell you what his view about election because this is important. He presented a view of election that was brand new. He said that election was not about God unconditionally electing individual people to salvation or damnation, but that it was simply God electing Christ. God's rejection or reprobation of sinful humanity was taken by Christ so that all are elect. So here's his view. Here's Bart's view. God doesn't elect individuals for salvation. He elects the individual, Christ, the God-man. And because God's wrath, his reprobation has been poured out on Christ, there's none left for humanity right? Jesus is representative of humanity, okay? And so he says this, in the beginning, before time and space as we know them, before creation, before there was any reality distinct from God, which could be the object of the love of God or the setting for his acts of freedom, God anticipated and determined within himself that the goal and meaning of all his dealings with the as yet not existent universe should be in the fact that in his son, he would be gracious towards man, uniting himself with him. Okay? He also said Christ is the electing God and he is also elected man. Now, what does that mean? Here's what, here's what Bart is saying. Because God has been united to man in the person of Jesus, all humans are elected and saved because Christ is elect. Bart's idea leads to all humanity being saved, what's called universalism, a very unbiblical idea. So, Bart's good on some things. It's good that he rejects kind of his, uh, some of his theological uh, uh, leanings as he was growing up training, studying theology in Germany. And, uh, but he doesn't hold some views that are biblical, and this is one of those views. God doesn't elect people, he elects Christ, and because he reprobates Christ on the cross, in a sense, there's no more reprobation left for us, and therefore everybody is saved, okay? Not a biblical idea, just want you to know about it, just in case somebody tries to, to pull the whole, well, yeah, the Bible talks about election, but really God elected Christ. Yes, but he also elected who would be in Christ, okay? And it's not everybody, and it's not everybody. So, with that in mind, let's have Q&A Jeff won't come up because he is out of town on vacation, but he will be back next week. Thoughts, questions, comments on uh, predestination in the Reformation and post-Reformation eras?